I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you William Digby is a former Green Beret commando with the Australian Army Special Forces and now is a growth capital investor and entrepreneur. This conversation dives deep into the lessons he's learned in the most extreme environments, how he makes and improves his decision-making process, how to achieve mastery in multiple domains, and so much more. If you're into high performance and becoming a voracious learner, then you will love this episode with William Digby. For the high performers looking to improve their leadership abilities, listen up and get ready to discover the path to becoming a better version of yourself. Let's face it, the best leaders, they're always on the hunt for insights, wisdom, looking for ways to get better, ways to make other people better. They see the gap between who they are and who they could be. For three decades, thousands of the world's most elite leaders have turned to admired leadership for insights, for the behaviors and routines of true leadership excellence, how to make decisions, build relationships, how to motivate and inspire. Now, for the first time, these rare insights are available online. Admired Leadership has this incredible video platform that focuses on 10 areas that are critical for all leaders. In each video module, you'll learn the 10 specific behaviors of the very best leaders. I've had the pleasure of taking this course, and it is hands down the best course I have ever taken on leadership. If you're looking to better yourself or raise up the team or company you're working with, then you have to check out Admired Leadership. I'm also excited about the new Admired Leadership Field Notes email. This is a daily email from the front lines of leadership. It's free, and even better, when you sign up, you'll get a special 16-page guide to motivation and inspiration that will change the way you lead. So you need to ask yourself the question, are you ready to become an even better leader? If so, find out more at admiredleadership.com. This podcast is all about uncovering the lessons and wisdom high performers are using to better their life, and one of the most important elements of high performance is your sleep. That's why I'm thrilled to tell you about 8Sleep. 8Sleep is revolutionizing what a great night of sleep means. The Pod Pro by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market. And what it does is the Pod Pro has dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking so you know the exact amount and quality of the sleep you're getting. It comes in the form of both a mattress or a cover you can put on your existing mattress. Get the pod and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees for those people who like a nice chilly room or mattress and as hot as 110 degrees. I'm one of the fans of the cooler mattress, so this is perfect for me. The temperature of the Pod Pro will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment for you. So what's the result of all this? Eight sleep users fall asleep 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get an overall more restful night of sleep. The Pod Pro by Eight Sleep is so popular as garnered the attention from CEOs, pro athletes, and overall high performers like yourself. Go to eightsleep.com forward slash Sean to check out the Pod Pro and save $150 at checkoff. That's 8sleep.com forward slash Sean. William, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing very well, Sean. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. I am so excited for this one. Uh, I always love talking to people who, who have conquered multiple domains, and that's something you've certainly done. So I would love to know, when, when someone who's able to accomplish a lot in multiple arenas, do you have any non-negotiables you do throughout the day, uh, just, just sort of big buckets you like to to take care of and accomplish that just makes everything else go better for you? Yeah, good question. So, um Definitely exercise is the is has been the key lifeblood to my success. And if you have a look at my all the things that I've achieved, I think there is a physical element to all of them. And so yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, if I don't do that uh, early morning training session uh, as a minimum, then you know for me, you know the, the day is not off to the right start. So that is my uh, non-negotiable. And I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. i'm I'm just about to have my first baby. Um, well, my wife is. Uh, we're Congrats. literally sort of, uh, we're probably days away from happening. Um, hopefully, it doesn't happen during this podcast. <laughs> and, um, you know, one that's one of the things that I, you know, I think no matter what happens, I will try to maintain. But I guess for uh, those who are more experienced and yourself included, uh, maybe you can tell me whether or not uh, that is something you can maintain once your uh, once your life changes in that way. I, I think w- when the child comes, it's sort of that that Bruce Bruce Lee be like water. That that schedule is gonna gonna have to be somewhat malleable and flexible there. Uh, but no, yeah, I, I've seen that uh, as a father of two. If I'm able to get that physical element, um, that's gonna help me be a better father. It's gonna help me throughout the day. So yeah, that, that's something I've I've tried to stick with as well. For for you, those early morning training sessions. What specifically? What type of physical activities are you getting into right now? Yeah, so I've gone through lots of phases in my life. It's interesting. I've 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 definitely been one of those people that's fallen into the trap of overtraining, and I think maybe because I just really enjoy it. So, um, but I've I've sort of I've got to the point where I think I'm getting the maximum bang for my buck. You probably won't be surprised to to hear this. It's it's all you know. None of it is really reinventing the wheel. But I I've had uh, periods where I've been a long distance runner. So that's not today but um in, in where i was doing ultra marathons um you know competitively but not exceedingly well uh and in those days you know i'd get up and i'd run for maybe you know sometimes 90 minutes sometimes two hours um sometimes run in the morning and a run in the evening but uh i enjoyed that but really the return on that amount of time put in wasn't there compared to, to what i do at the moment and that is crossfit first thing in the morning um, and CrossFit sort of, you know, it's had its craze and and um, I think now, might, might now be tapering off a little bit in terms of um, its popularity. I'm not sure, but I still love it. Uh, and then in the evenings, I do some boxing training, just circuit training. My days of, of, of fighting, um, which, you know, we might come back to, it might be interesting to talk about, but my days of fighting uh, in, the, in the ring competitively are, are sort of long behind me now. So I just like to get the, the fitness element out of it. I, I love how you, how you hit on the, the time during the, the long distance runs. Sometimes you weren't getting the bang for the buck. I, I love that addition via subtraction. I'm wondering, are there other things that, that you've just eliminated throughout the years that, that you realized, you know what, th- these aren't really bringing the benefits I was hoping for? Uh, yeah, definitely. So, um, I mean, I'm an avid reader and I'm, I'm sure you are too. And um, one of the great books I read was – Many, but along this topic, one of the good ones I've really enjoyed recently is one called Deep Work. 
Um, I think by Carl Newport, although yep. um, I'll be embarrassed if I get the. Oh yeah, go, it's great. by Cal Newport. And um, uh, one of the um, so he has a lot of great messages in his book. And then in addition to that, there are a few other authors that have said similar things. Um, and that is the I, I feel like the return you get from reading the news, the the daily news that sort of. Um, you know, it's quite uh, has a lot of shock value, has a lot of sort of um, buy into the drama value. I mean, for some people, that's important for their job, but for others, and this is you know specific to the investment industry, that sort of daily update on what's happening isn't necessarily that important for your day to day decision making. But it can be very, it can be intoxicating, it can be time wasting. Um, I don't think it compounds that well over a lifetime. So that's something I've shaved off. Um, greatly, I tend not to dive into the sort of um, the broadsheets or all the tabloids or anything that as anywhere near what I used to. Um, and I replace that time now with reading something much more thoughtful, usually in the form of a book. Because to me, um, you know, the, the the return you get from um, you know reading someone's thoughts that have been distilled into something that you know they've sort of put in a few hundred pages. I mean, you can for, for the for the investment of a day day's work, essentially, sometimes you can understand almost someone's lifetime uh, experience. You know, the payoff can be that big. So, to answer your question, yeah, I've I've shaved off the the day to day, you know, buying into what's happening, and I've replaced that with you know more sort of deeper thought. Yeah, I, I've tended to do the same thing, eliminate most of that noise. That's just the news mm-hmm. there. Um, Nassim Taleb's got, got a great framework, the Lindy effect, the things that have been around the longest tend to stick around the longest. So there's some of those great books. Um, if they were around 50, 2,000 years ago, uh, they might still be there in the future. They're probably worth reading. Um, you mentioned a great part there about how authors have taken sometimes years to distill down their thinking into such a concise framework and thought process. I love that. We're going to dive more into reading later. I know you're an avid reader, but is there anything else you do just to distill down your thinking or, or, or what you're coming across? Um, well, I, I, I mean, probably won't be surprised to hear I do a bit of meditation, although that's definitely been something that uh, has been a work in progress over the years. I, I wouldn't say that I'm, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a believer in the effects, but I'm not, um, I haven't really, uh, I don't think, unlocked the power entirely. In fact, my, my meditation is only a small amount of time each day. Um, I, I think it gets a benefit, but it's definitely something I'm working on. You know, and if you do something along those lines, I'd love to hear um, your thoughts. Um, uh, but I think it, it definitely it's 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 uh, about trying to continually um, find the most efficient and the most compounding way of doing things. You know, extracting the most out of out of each day. And I think with a you know something like a baby coming along, I think that's it's you know the emphasis on that is even more uh, in terms of you know being efficient and getting the most out. Yeah, I do some meditation. I don't want to pretend I am at all qualified to uh, to talk about that. It, it's it's more for me just just trying to be in the moment and, and capture just awareness, even if it's stepping back back a few deep breaths during the time. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to pretend like I've got any insights here. But uh, before we dive too far into the details, I, I love just getting just a bit of a better grasp on you and how you got here. And I, I know you were a Green Beret Commando. How'd you get into that? Yeah, good question. So. Um, I correct. I was a, a, a commando for for many years, so that's an Australian that's Australian Special Forces for um, for those listeners out there or, or, or readers or watchers. 
Um, you know, Australia's army is divided into uh, with normal infantry, and then we have our special forces, and we have within that SAS, which is similar to British, and we have our commandos, um, similar to British Royal Marines, but different from US uh, Marines, different from US commandos, but in some ways we all sort of share the same lineage. Um, and look, I think that's like <clears throat> like a lot of things in life, it, it fitted, um, you know, uh, incremental sort of challenge. And, um, you know, initially I, I just, I, I had sold my, when I was younger, I had sold my business that I've been working on for, you know, or in for many years. I hit a, a point in life where I had sort of, you know, some free time, you know, in a weird way, sort of in my mid-20s, I all of a sudden, you know, I had, I didn't have anything to do the next day, you know, so to speak. Um, I'd always been interested in um, in the military. I'd been in sort of, you know, in the, in, at school, I'd done some military type things. My grand, my great-grandfather had been to World War One and World War Two. a little bit of lineage. And um, I just dipped my toe in and then, um, you know, I loved it. Um, it was, it, it's one of those things where you sort of, you start off with your uh, basic training and, you know, that's kind of challenging. Um, but then when you look back on that, well, you know, so easy compared to what it went on um, to be after that. I remember standing, uh, uh, you know, after sort of a bit in the army for a year, um, standing, uh, having put my application in for special forces with the 140, 143, I think, other candidates um, you know, and it's exactly what you would imagine. You know, you're standing there in the rain, day one of um, selection course. Um, there's a sense, there's this overwhelming sense of, oh, wow, how did I get myself into this <laughs> position? And looking around, there's this, there's this huge buffed um, guys who've been in the Army for, you know, five, ten years. Because, um, you know, it's not like you don't, you don't really come in fresh, so to speak. Usually, you know, you've been put up by your, uh, you know, your commander to represent your unit. You know, they don't like to send a sort of uh, people that, you know, won't at least have some limited success within that process. So you're standing there amongst all these sort of men mountains. And I did think to myself, yeah, I could be out of my depth here a little bit. I mean, confident, but at the same time, definitely, uh, you know, it was just, there's a sense of uh, foreboding. And then at the end, 10 months later, after, you know, I'd, I'd love to go into the detail if, if you want to, but 10 months later, there was only 11 of us left standing. You know, the attrition rate was, you know, just extraordinary. And, um, you know, within that 10 months, you really only have a day or two off. I mean, there's like a weekend here and there. And it's just this sort of journey of um, self-discovery, mental and physical, um, you know, anguish, um, I mean, they really not only not only do they just do they put uh, pressure on you in every possible way you can imagine, but they're extremely good at it. You know, they have this honed system for doing it. Um, and so, uh, you know, by the end of that, it's it is a it's a bit of a whatever doesn't kill you makes you uh, a lot stronger. I feel, and you know, I've, I've really uh, it's made a big difference to my life. Uh, I think from then on. Is there any specific moments during those 10 months that, that just still are fresh in your mind? Oh, uh, there's a lot. So just to cover off sort of in the in the broadest possible way, there's there's everything you could imagine um, in that course. So there's all the sort of things that, you, you know, there's, um, there's special weapons, explosives, um, there's survival, 
there's sort of amphibious insertion, airborne insertion, there's hot wiring cars, there's um, there's uh, in, in interrogation, resistance to interrogation. There's like the whole spectrum of um, man skills, and I should say, and woman skills, because uh, some army special forces do have women now, but not, not in Australian army. But there's this whole spectrum of life skills that you pick up. Things like the um, things like going resistance to interrogation that is as fresh in my mind today as it was probably when it happened. It's um, I mean, uh, sadly, we can't talk. I can't talk too much about the details of that. But it is, you know, it's, it's as horrible as it sounds. Um, there are, uh, you know, I mean, there there are many confronting moments um, <clears throat> throughout that. That, that journey. Um, I mean, in um, one in particular, there's a um, there's a course. It's called Amphib, which is where you are training to do you know um, insertion by the ocean, and it is just this sort of relentless week after week of being at you know not not quite at sea actually. You're you're off the coast, but every, you know, every day up on the boats. Um, you know, doing missions and mission practices, uh, you're cold, uh, you're wet, everything's heavy, and then maybe you'll sort of finish at like 2 or 3 or 4 a.m., back up at 6. I mean, it's like two, three hours of sleep a night, night after night, week after week, and all that stuff that you kind of see in, um, you know, it's like all that stuff you see in the movies times 100, really. <laughs> It's horrendous. It, it sounds like you're perfectly trained then for a, a new baby on the way. <laughs> no sleep, yeah, wet, cold. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Exactly. I, you mentioned a few things there uh, I would love to dive further into because you mentioned watching on the movies. These are so much more intense than you could imagine. I'm wondering what what can't you what can't you read about what can't you watch but once going through that you just walk away with with a different mindset a different mentality. Is there something like that that comes to mind for you? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, it sounds a little bit cliche, I guess, but you, uh, well, I mean, one thing that I was in, very impressed by was the fact that, um, so I, I did, I did that commando training. I was got qualified with badge, um, with my grand beret. And then I went pretty quickly onto pre-deployment training in Afghanistan. So pre-deployment training is another sort of 10 or 12 months of, you know, simulated things in, in, in country, like in, in Australia where, you know, you're practicing uh, what the job's going to be in Afghanistan. So you, you do that and that's, you know, less intense and you're with your team. And then I remember flying uh, from Australia through um, through the Middle East, landing Afghanistan. Um, we, got, we got to our base. Um, we got our first sort of briefing. And then that night we were out on target, uh, stacked up against the door there in um, Uruzgan province with Explosive charges on the door, you know, weapon ready to go at night, night vision, bang, explosives through the door and then straight into the compound. And I had this sense that I had done it like a hundred times. Complete comfort, complete, um, you know, heart rate sort of elevated but not uh, jacked. Just a sense that this was, you know, just a continuation of training that I'd done, you know, uh, yeah, a million times before. And that you know, reflecting on that is such an interesting thing, you know, uh, such, you know, you hear sort of, you know, train hard and fight easy and, you know, a lot of those sort of cliche sayings, but, you know, they are extremely true. And that, that in that moment, um, probably not in that moment, but reflecting on that moment definitely taught me about, you know, the sort of the power of preparation, the power of, of exposing yourself incrementally to things to the point where you can barely recognise 
uh, how you got there and, and even who you are and how you're capable of doing something when you look back to, to the starting point. But it really is that sort of compounding gain um, across that time. So I, I would say that's one of the most sort of profound things I got out of um, certainly, uh, you know, deploying. And uh, it's, a real, it's a real testament to, you know, to the system and, uh, and to, you know, to the power of sort of training very hard. Yeah, that incremental exposure, I, I view this as a superpower. I mean, you can even think about some of the most extreme things, call it just like fighting a, or uh, flying a jet pilot. If you're able to do that, you get you train it so well it's almost like driving a car your subconscious takes over um just just thinking you can take the most complex tasks and essentially have your subconscious take them over um it, it's just a great framework to, to think about with anything you, you want to conquer it, it's funny you were talking about the training uh, i was recently talking with a, a navy seal who's a good friend of mine and I, I was just asking about like when you're actually on deployment and he, he was saying sean he goes you you don't understand he goes i've repped this out so many hundreds of times like it, I, it was just, it was just so clear what was going to go on there. Uh, so it's just interesting hearing about that. You mentioned something I, w- I would love to dive into, and that's around confidence. And I'm wondering what your confidence was like throughout that progression in the Green Berets, and then what it's like today. Are are you still experiencing the same level of confidence you had, call it a decade ago? Yeah, interesting question. I'm not sure I've reflected on that before. So. Having gone through that process and having been successful, I definitely have a sense. And then, then been on the sort of instructing side a little bit. I've never formally instructing uh, courses for a very long time, but just just by virtue of being in that environment, of course, you do get put onto courses and you do things and you see people who are in the position you were in previously, although you're seeing it now from the other side. And you you definitely get a feeling for what the type of personality that they are looking for and the type of personality that would be successful in you know, that environment going forward. And confidence, it, it, it's, it's certainly this sort of perfect um, medium between someone who's very confident but has a lot of humility and, and, and understands that they make mistakes and then you know, it's just about making a mistake and then just getting straight back onto the job and not being distracted by the fact you've made a mistake. So overconfidence is a disaster. Underconfidence is a disaster, but somewhere in, between, in the middle there, where you believe in yourself, but not so much that you are, you know, arrogant to the point where um, you won't listen and you won't accept that you've made a mistake. And so you see that a lot actually in that environment. People selecting themselves out because, um, first of all, they, you know, maybe they've, um, yeah, they've been, they've been too confident, or maybe they have. They have um, they don't they won't accept that they're wrong in some situation or someone will say, look, you've done that the wrong way and they don't agree with that. And so then, you know, some sort of pushback occurs and that is not what they're looking for. Um, now to answer your question about confidence, yeah, I, I certainly that that course is full of self-doubt. I mean, they just they they structured in that way to test that about you. I mean, there is not there's barely any time where you sort of I mean maybe towards the end, but there are many, many, many long, uh, 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 torturous hours of feeling as I, you know, I, don't, I don't know if I belong, I don't know if I'm going to succeed. I mean, they have this sort of quite um, cruel structure where in the very early stage, in the first sort of two months, they have a thing called the Bosworth Studies. And so people are, people are doing things and getting themselves kicked off uh, you know, from time to time. Other people are 
pulling out a you know, little piece of paper and you keep in your top pocket which says, oh, I want to go home, please, effectively. As soon as you pull that out, you're instantly in a hot shower and but you can never come back. Tempting. And people will pull that. Yeah, yeah tempting, exactly. And now you, they push you to pull that out all the time. And then there is another third category where they, behind the scenes, they meet and um, they make an assessment and then they will come and, you know, sort of you know, unceremoniously call out a few numbers of people who are now like off the course. You know, it's kind of, and that happens more on a sort of, it has a cadence, you know, it's like every Friday. Um, and so, um, um, so the, um, <clears throat> I sort of lost what point I was going to make. I think I was, I was um, what I was coming to was um, in terms of your confidence, you know, you, you always have this sense that like you might be kicked off any minute and that really plays into your mind. But I think after, um, so so having looked back on all of that, yeah, I think it do, it does give you an extreme amount of confidence when you get when you get through everything. But I don't think I ever lost that humility, and I still don't think I have lost that humility. I think that's very important in yeah the investing side of worlds. I mean, I take a lot of I no doubt this conversation will get there. We will draw the parallels between I think a lot of these things and then how they go on to help you in sort of you know, the investment world and what I do now. But um, I think confidence has always been something where I've, I've, you know, without sounding too self-serving, I've been squarely in that confident, but you know, not arrogant, not overconfident, not getting myself into too much trouble. But we'll see. Yeah, no. Well, I would actually love to know how this transition into being an investor, right? Like, you have to have conviction towards those investments. But, but I'm wondering, like, when those are dropping down, like, do you stay in? Do you, do you sell? Like, I, I would just love to know how you think through all of that. Where you've done the work, I know you dive deep into the data. And if data's telling you something else, I would just love to know your thought process through this all. Sure. On the investment side. Correct. So, yeah. So, so my investment career has taken a few, um, you know, it's evolved over time, of course, and I've done slightly different things. So just to give um, some background, I started, I started a fund in uh, about 2012 with another Australian. Um, so my business partner at the time. Uh, and you know, sort of the story about how we got that started is quite interesting. Maybe we'll come back to that. But to answer your question about, uh, you know, conviction, you know, there's I still think you have to have humility at every stage. So we 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 started off by making a lot of investments in uh, emerging markets. There's, you know, the, we had we had a, a, a sort of a broad philosophy that you could invest time and effort understanding uh, those markets and the people and the businesses you wanted to invest in, and then you would have some edge that other people didn't have. So the listed sort of, you know, think about the, the US markets, the listed markets, you know, incredibly deeply analysed, um, you know, very hard to get sort of an informational edge or even a sort of an analytical edge, you know, or more difficult uh, than, say, places where you don't have as many sort of high qualities, high quality might not be the word, but you just don't have many as many minds thinking about that. You know certain things, and so we thought we could get a competitive advantage by going there and doing that. Um, so, um, and I think even when we had conviction about you know, a company or a management team or investment, you know, there was there's always a sense of you know the ability to be wrong um, and the ability and, and having to challenge your own thoughts, you know, throughout throughout the entire holding period. So you're right; it is exactly that. It's exactly a combination of um, conviction. Because without that, you really can't get anything done. But at the same time, maintain the humility that you know you could be wrong, and um, you have to be prepared to sort of reassess your your own 
conclusions all the time. And I think that takes that takes a lot of discipline to say you know to, to say when you've been wrong um, and to accept when you look at some data and say you know what you know I, I, I am wrong. I've looked at this and we now need to do something about it. Have you gotten better at being able to to say that you're wrong? Probably not. Um, <laughs> So, um, you know, I'm, I probably suffer from, um, uh, I, you know, if I had to pick, pick out a flaw, and hopefully, you know, hopefully you're, 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 you haven't got too many people reading or listening to your uh, podcast. I've known a few. If I pick out a flaw, it would, it would probably be that, um, um, like, I, I should delegate, I should, uh, I should uh, get more opinions than I than I do. So I well, I like to um, you know, I, I don't have a problem saying well, I don't understand. Um, can you explain this to me? Uh, what do you think about this? And drawing in opinions, but I quickly arrive at what I think is um, my understanding of it, and then usually I sort of stop there. And my business partner is sort of you know smarter, better looking, uh, you know more charismatic uh, of the two, of course. Uh, he's better at that. He's quite good at just continually soliciting opinions. Um, there's no problem just sort of you know presenting in this to someone as though he has he knows absolutely nothing and extracting um, all of that information. Where I tend to want to go in a little bit on the offensive and say, "Look, I understand this. And this. Can you now explain this last little bit to me?" So yeah, I think there's you know that's why it's good to have more minds uh, in in the decision making process for sure. Well, at least it sounds like you know yourself, and, and we're definitely going to cover that. I'd love to know more about that self-discovery process for you, but but I can't pass up the start of the fun in 2012. Well, you, you said it was a good story. I, I would love to hear this story. Yeah, so, I mean, this it's really just peppered with dozens of quite interesting stories. I mean, maybe I'll um, – uh, okay, let me just tell you one quick investment story, which you know I find – which is which is just funny, and it's it really just you know, it personifies the whole fund and the whole journey for us. So early on, we we basically pitched to investors um, that we knew that we thought there was this dislocation where emerging markets were full of uh, opportunity to to bring business models that had existed in developed countries and see where the gaps were in these emerging markets and 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 back them and. You know, usually it's technology driven. Usually it's a business model where you're leapfrogging and and you know you're um, changing the way things are done and you dis you know you're dislocating. I mean these are all sort of very abstract, high level ideas, but that's sort of what we pitch them on. And we raise enough capital to do that. We raised fifty million USD, which is like relatively small, very small for the US, but you know it's a decent amount of firepower in in these markets where companies are quite small and growing quickly. So one of the things that we've gone on to early was um, doesn't fit exactly with that thesis, but we got on to the fact that all most of the roses that are uh, supplied to Europe, especially the UK, they all come from uh, Kenya. And they all come from this small little uh, area in Kenya. It's just the perfect nexus of um, uh, altitude and you know air pressure and sunlight and all these things that sort of come together to make it like you know the haven for growing roses. There and another place in Ecuador. So the two places on Earth where it's best. They get put in 747s and flown to the markets in Amsterdam where they get uh, auctioned and then they go straight to the shops. That all happens sort of within you know, a seven or eight hour windows. Every morning these 747s are flying out of Kenya full of roses. Quite fascinating. So we went down there. We're going to get into the rose business. Um, and so... We knew this hotelier there in Kenya, uh, so he put us up. We sort of were friendly with him, and he knew a few people in the rose business uh, 
game. Like he was related to someone who was in it. We were like perfect. You know, we sort of know these guys and it sounds like you've got a good business and on paper sounds good. So we stayed there and we and the, in the evening of um, the, the, you know, the next day we're going to go and have a look at the farms. The rose farms are sort of out of Kenya. You, gotta, you have to fly. So that evening we're, you know, we're having some drinks with him and we're having a good time. He's telling us about the roses. He's not in the rose business, but, you know, he knows a bit about it. Uh, he, he, he runs this hotel. And he's having what we think is, you know, some mineral waters and Chris and I are having a beer or two and we sort of think, okay, let's get an early night. You know, we're in Kenya. This is kind of exciting. Um, you know, very early on in the fun stage, you know, maybe like probably the first due diligence trip we'd ever, we had ever done. We'd done some road tours. We'd never been down on the, on, you know, to Africa for, for looking at a deal yet. Um, and then um, so he's drinking, you know, probably two or three of these mineral waters like every uh, um, quarter of an hour. Um, you know, we're sort of thinking, I was, I was really like hydrating himself quite aggressively. And then in the morning we woke up, his wife said, she says, look, you know, he, uh, or I'm not going to name him, but he has gone to the uh, airstrip uh, to get the plane ready. So you guys, look, here's some uh, you know, sandwiches for you. You guys are going to meet him at the airstrip now and you're going to fly and have a look at this uh, rose uh, asset. So we get to the airstrip and this sort of tiny little plane comes puttering around, you know, this little sort of fixed-wing Cessna um, thing, is, you know, minute, and, you know, the door opens and there's, like, our pilot and, you know, uh, a hotelier who's, like, masquerading as a pilot as well. But he hasn't been on the mirror waters. It's clear. He's been on the gin and tonics all night. And the plane smells like um, you, you're stepping into a bar, you know, the night after. I mean, it was horrendous. So Chris and I jump in. Chris is in the back. I'm in the front. And, you know, these little planes are incredibly loud. So you have to put the uh, headphones on so you can talk. And Chris doesn't have any headphones. He's just he's only the pilot and the, and the person in the, in the co-pilot seat. The plane takes off and, and we're flying for about about an hour. And then uh, the the pilot he he starts sort of he starts his sort of like a passing out motion. So his head's rocking back and forth. His eyes are rolling to the back of his head. And so now I've got the uh, you know the the flight controls. There's like dual controls, and I'm sort of trying to keep it level as he is sort of making it um, dive a little bit with his you know passing out. And then within about ten minutes, he's completely passed out. So I'm flying the plane now, and I'm not a pilot. I mean, I've been in the I've been in the military. But never, never pilot's license. I certainly haven't been in the Air Force. And Chris is in the back, doesn't have any, uh, I can't talk to him. It was very loud. I'm giving him a few hand signals, <laughs> concerning hand signals. But we fly for about um, 40 minutes. And then I finally, and below us is like the African savannah. So it's like just as far as the eye can see, flat with like wildebeest. You're not you know, getting rescued of, if you guys go down. <laughs> so. But I said to him, look, I said to Chris, oh, I'm going to have to try and land. I mean, I don't know, we don't really have any other, other options. I can't just fly indefinitely. I don't even know where we're going. So over the course of like the 10 minutes, I sort of just start losing altitude. And then we, we sort of it's had these really big like um, sort of industrial tyres. I mean, it must be made, this plane made for sort of landing on really like um, – you know, tough, tough ground. But we sort of we bounce along the ground for about, you know, what feels like a kilometre. There's like, you know, elephants and giraffe like just sort of, you know, off to the side. And finally we bring it to a stop. There's like a pride of lions um, just off the one side. There's this passed out pilot on the other side and there's Chris and me looking at ourselves going, we just, yeah. I don't know how, how did we end up thinking we're going to get into the rose business? And we, did, we, we definitely did not do that investment. But it was just sort of, 
what that, that was the beginning of what became many uh, uh, diligence trips similar to that, some of which where we did invest. But it was really just incredible, right? It's very fun. Unbelievable stories along the way. I, I'm wondering, yeah. like, for clearly you're driven by something. I mean, like into Muay Thai, Green Beret, entrepreneur, mm-hmm. investor. Like, what, what's at the heart? Like, what's driving you? There, there's something going on underneath the hood of this car. I mean, I wish I had a really sort of uh, interesting answer for that. I had a, I've got a great uh, buddy of mine from school who's gone and become this incredibly successful musician. And when we were young and hanging out and, and doing a lot of things uh, you know, together and just sort of being kids, we were both driven just by what we just refer to as just the stories, just having good stories in life, like having doing things and having at the end of those things, you know, some interesting uh, tale to tell. And I don't know if I just actively had sought out to go and do those types of things, but that's certainly how my life has panned out. I mean, a lot of things that haven't been just for the sake of it, but, um, you know, I just, you know, have massive, I just have vast interests and like to pursue um, the things that interest me, you know, and and get to a certain point where I'm you know, just slightly more than a Luddite, but, and, but not so much that I can't just go on off and do something else. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there has been periods where you know, I was fighting professionally uh, in Thailand. There's been, you know, there's been periods of the army. There's been periods of running my own business. And, and you know, it's sort of this, this, this investment fund that I was just talking about, which took me and, and, and Chris to, I mean, we have investments in sort of 12 or 13 different countries all around the world. And it's just been um, uh, a very interesting journey and i don't know if there's been like one core catalyst to do it all other than sort of you know wanting to have uh, sort of an interesting life so someone who's also has a vast interest i'm wondering for you how how do you get focused enough to skill up in that proficiency that you need in order to to understand that enough without then quickly seeing the next thing that you're interested in well, it's good. That's a very good question, and that is, in, in a lot of ways, that's also that's also my fatal flaw, and that is that I. <laughs> I'm right there. I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, so my my problem is I I can intensely focus on something because I find it so interesting that it'll be at the cost of everything else that tends to be. So, um, yeah, I'm 40 now. A bit of a late starter on family. Bit of a late starter on you know marriage. Um, I mean, if I look back to all my schoolmates, you know, all have kids in the sort of that are, you know, starting to become teenagers. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of I'm a good ten years behind in that sense. And I think um, so. I think there's two parts of it. One is uh, it, it is a deep focus uh, and drive in whatever I'm doing at the time. And then, yeah, I have noticed the tendency to get to a certain point where um, I say to myself, "Okay, look, I think there's something actually. I think I've." achieved what I set out to do here and now I'm gonna want to I now want to go and do the next thing. And I think, you know, a bit like uh lots of people who have, have a similar approach, a lot of the energy comes from the learning and the sort of uh you know succeeding by failing. And then maybe once you maybe once you get to a certain point that starts to become less interesting for some reason. I mean I, I don't I don't know exactly what it is, but it seems if I look back on my life you know, I don't think I was ever going to be a career soldier, but I definitely wanted to achieve what I did there. I don't um, think I was going to be in emerging markets forever. I mean, it's incredibly taxing, but the learning curve was so severe in both of those examples 
that you know, I really relish the fact that I got to do them. Uh, and I think that's sort of how I view every um, chapter, intense but relatively short. I mean, it's still talking about five-year five year chunks. Yeah, that that thread uh, I have not distilled down my thinking in, enough on this, but but it is so intriguing. Those those environments with incredibly steep learning curves, where where you can skill up, get to say eighty to ninety percent proficiency in that, and then it's mm-hmm. like, all right, I, I've got the majority there. For me to edge out that extra ten percent is not going to be worth the time. And then you can take those lessons, learnings, and transfer them over in, into the next domain. Um, it, it's a thread I've seen pop up again and again with different people on this show. You you mentioned just that that deep focused. Um, I'm wondering for you then, like right now, what's just consuming your time and energy? Like, what do you what are you trying to to, to learn and understand better? Yeah. So, um, well, I've got a new. Uh, there's a few things, uh, as you know, as you might expect, but I've got a new fund. So, I'm in an interest, I'm out of, I'm out of real watershed. So we have we have just raised a brand new fund. Uh, Jamison Capital. That's my current shop. It's um, it's a it's a real estate credit fund. It's a special situations, you know, essentially driven by COVID. Jamison's been around for five or six years or seven, maybe in the set, maybe maybe in our seventh year. Although I haven't been there the whole time, but I have been there throughout this, uh, you know, pre-COVID and then leading into COVID. And yeah, you know, it's great. I and mean, we turned a massive corner where we now have. Um, you know, we, we've had institutional capital prior, but we've never had discretionary institutional capital. So just for people who are, um, who are, who are listening who, who may not be familiar with those terms, we have been doing a lot of investing where we, we find the investment we want to do, then we go out and talk to investors and we say, hey, would you, you know, like to invest in this? We'll be the manager, we'll take fees, we'll, make, you know, we'll manage the investment once it's all done, we'll return the capital. But investors essentially get to choose Yes, I like to invest in that, and you guys run that for me. When, once you get to discretionary capital, then what happens is you say to investors, "Look, we have this strategy. We don't have the investments yet, but give us your uh, commitment to give us money when we ask for it, and we're going to invest it in the strategy." But once you've made that commitment, then we can invest in whatever we want within that strategy. So there's a sort of a big difference between those two things in terms of. You know, your ability to execute and also the trust level that investors have to have. We, we're now very much in that latter category where we have large institutional pension funds and a big and a FTSE 100 asset manager, which is kind of, it's a big deal for a smaller shop who have given us that commitment. They've given us $100 million and said, we love your strategy for um, special situations in Australia. Uh, you know, when you need the capital, 10 days notice, if it's yours, go and find the investments you want to do. So that, that's, that's been a lot of work over COVID, but very exciting to get to that point where now we're, we're going to be deploying. So that's taking my focus um, at the moment, obviously a lot of hard work. It's not, it's not quite as sort of, you know, interesting. Uh, I, I, you know, when I, I'm, I'm be, be delicate here. Like, of course it's interesting. Of course I'm enthusiastic and de- dedicated to it. Not quite the same as what I had been doing. Where, um, yeah, real estate is a, is through a narrow aperture, really, and very local. Whereas I'm been typically a more global investor and um, more interested in um, the humans and their behaviour within sort of the context of the investment, rather than the assets and the market and sort of the structuring, which is a bit more where I'm at now. Will I would love for you to double click on that. The, the human behavior <laughs> element. I, I know yeah. this is something you and I are both obsessed with. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's funny. So um, I, I mean, to me, everyone has their investing style, and you know, a lot of people sort of come from a top down you know, macro approach and bottom up fundamentals. And for me, the the key thread is much more on the human side of things. I mean, I sort of, I mean, you obviously, you and I have can see we have similar interests, and you probably done similar reading. And so, what I'm about to say will resonate with you, I'm sure. But having a, in this current era, having a, a behavioural edge both yourself and being able to identify people that have a behavioural edge, I think is more important than a lot of other things that were very important, like, you know, having sort of access to things where other people didn't, um, you know, being in the right market where other people couldn't come in. I mean, we're so globalised now, there's so much information, there's so much distraction that actually for people who aren't distracted um, and it's the management teams that aren't overwhelmed and it's the individuals that aren't sort of pulled and, and pushed by every you know bit of as you put it earlier in the conversation you know the noise they, in my view they are the ones uh that are going to be you know the most successful so it's kind of it's almost done a flip now so it's not about going out and trying to gather as much information as you can like it might have previously been it's about your ability to sort of you know block out a lot of it so i'm always on a hunt for managers who think that same way um and you know i find that to me in a lot of ways that's my sort of uh investing approach in amongst of course the framework of all the other things that you need i mean nothing nothing in of itself is enough you need, you need all aspects but to me that's that's key yeah I, I don't even know if you can articulate this i'm sure this is just a bit of that fingertip feel uh, of really like just sitting down with someone and understanding what's going on underneath their hood but is there something in addition to what you just mentioned that just kind of like your light go, light bulb goes off that you know what th- this person might have that behavioral edge I'm looking for. Mm, good question. Actually, um, I'm not sure. I, yeah, I can answer that in a in a you know, in an intelligent way, but I can give you some examples. I mean, the um, I mean, I've just had I've had a lot of exposure to management teams over the years. I mean, one um, and I, I'm not sure this story is going to exactly uh, answer you know what you're looking for, but one investment we, that I made was. Uh, and one very humbling moment, definitely, was a was a was a property portal business overseas. So we had, I had, I, I had, I just love the the real estate portal businesses, you know. So like, you know, imagine a, a you know, all listings, you know, on a website uh, of real estate assets, and once they become the dominant player in a the market, then they're very hard to dislodge, and they're very, you know, they become they become they can become very valuable. Um, plenty of examples globally. So I had been on the hunt. Uh, for the best one of these that people didn't know of, you know, the, the next up and coming in a particular market. I found this small team in Pakistan um, and they were, um, you know, they were about 80 guys. It sounds like a lot, but actually a lot of them were sort of entering data. You know, it was probably a core team of about 20, tiny at that stage really. Um, in Lahore, Pakistan, you know, it was a sort of like obscure place to find a management team. Um and just having this, after speaking to them, you know, it's having this sense that, oh, these guys are just so obviously incredibly smart. They, every question I ask them, you know, you, I have, you know, I have, they, they know the answer to every element of their business, every element of the market. Um, they're incredibly focused, um, you know, very diligent guys. And so we, we invested and, you know, we, they, just been, they've just been compounding that business 100% for, you know, Years now, I mean, it, it's massive. We invested a valuation of about sixty-five million dollars US, 
now sort of 1.2 billion or something. It's just been so successful. But there's been points along the way where I've you know sat in with management and they have sort of they've described something about the market and what they intend to do. You know, one of them was you know the change fundamentally change the business model. And I've just took this sort of academic approach, you know, where you know it's management and distracted. That's um, you know you're you know sort of trying you, you, you're going off um, you're sort of off track and like you know the business model is this and why are you trying to bring this you know new element and that's going to affect how you, you know this is a sort of a subscription business um, now you're moving into a sort of a non-subscription business and just um, over and over these guys having sort of the the confidence and the clarity to say no look, this is we you know we understand this and you know this is what we're going to do and I, you know, I was each time I was sort of humbled by their insight. Um, uh, so I think the point I'm really coming to now is the um, when you're on the board of companies, it gives you a lot of power uh, as an investor. Your, you know, your voice is actually come, is quite strong in that context. And I think you have to have the humility to be able to say, um, you know, how, you know, to understand what, what to, to understand um, when you've really got a team that is you know, exceptional and, you know, that you, a lot of the time, you should be listening to them rather than you trying to tell them um, what they should do. So, you know, that for me, that was, that was a good lesson in sort of, you know, in my own behavior more than anything, I think. Yeah, there goes humility popping up again. Yeah. That, that, that team makes me think about a framework you and I both work off of, and, and that's not confusing, motion for progress. Uh, yeah. you, you've got a memo where you talk about Buck Baker and Tony McNamara. Uh, I would. I think that's a great story to to really synthesize this framework of not confusing motion for progress. I, I'd love if you could tell that. Yeah, sure. So that's um, that's one that's a reference to um, you know uh, like two 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 people sort of tackling the world in parallel. Is that the one that yep, you're exactly? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's interesting. I mean, so those memos that, that I write, I mean, it's to me, they're just sort of a you know, little bit of a creative um, outlet. They're a little bit of a self-discipline where, um, you know, I sort of I take, I try to take something perennial and put into words that I understand it, and then share it with people and see if you know they they find it interesting. Um, and um, in that example, I think actually at the core of them, this, this might not be the answer you're you're expecting. But I think at the, actually at the core of that. When I was writing that, was more about um, your own, my own siren song of not wasting your life on things that aren't that important. And I sometimes I have those self-reflecting moments. I mean, as you said earlier on in the call um, uh, or the discussion, you know, yeah, I have intensely gone after like a number of things and and achieved you know a number of interesting things, and you know, it makes good conversation. But I'm stepping. Definitely aware of getting to a certain point and then saying, "God, I've just I have had been so buried in this that now I'm coming up for air and like the world is sort of passing by." Um, so you know, that was kind of this at the spirit um, of that memo. Um, and then I think you know at a at a, you know, at, a at another level, yeah, it was certainly about the difference between um, sort of compounding things in the right direction um, versus. Not and I mean, there's just umpteen examples of that. I mean, the latest one that I've sort of been thinking about more and more is the 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 the, the barrier or the competitive advantage or you know any sort of these words you want to use of the compounding effect of just being a good um, citizen in business over a lifetime. It's incredibly hard 
to replicate that in a short period of time. I mean, if you are just one of those people that sort of consistently sort of delivers, treats people well, you know, gives people the benefit of the doubt, um, gives uh, investors or other people the benefit of a conflict of interest, you know, I think over a sort of a lifetime, or not even that, you know, over a decade or two, you can be in this position where you have something that others just just cannot obtain, not, not necessarily about that, but, you know, it's incredibly powerful, that sort of, you know, I mean, another way to put that's just sort of reputation, which, you know, I think that summarises it. But I've been thinking more deeply about how it is that you sort of build that and just how powerful it is and why you shouldn't be frustrated when you're younger that people won't give you money when you're asking to pitch them to, you know, to invest in your fund or people won't give you these opportunities. I think just keep compounding away um, and you will just like, you know, that last few years of your um of your you know of your of your of your pension of your super fund where you get all that return in the last few years and it's taken all that time to get there but now you're done now you're compounding something that's massive i think you get the same effect in in business and, and relationships yeah you, it's funny you can find those fat tails in, in life just just like what you're doing with your capital as well yeah. One thing I, I'd love to dive into a bit further, because um, I, I, it's probably a bit of an obsession for both of us, and that's just around decision-making as a whole. And I know you've mentioned a, a few things around your decision-making. I'm wondering for you, like, what has improved your decision-making process the most? Mm. Yeah, um, I'm, I've always been a sort of – I've been a big fan of the, of the, of the checklist, of the flight list. Um, I mean, it sounds sort of um, – you know, it's not – it's not reinventing the wheel, but I, um, you know, I, as we both do, do a lot of reading. Um, I, I, I love a systematic approach. I love a, um, a sort of, uh, you know, um, starting with the end in mind. I like, um, you know, devil's advocate's not quite the right word, but, you know, I like, um, you know, sort of looking at it uh, in, in reverse is key. I mean, I sort of, <clears throat> I think um, the, the fellow who authors Farnham Street, Name just escaped me now. Uh, Shane um, Parrish. Shane, yeah, he he writes a lot on mental models and on um, decision making, and I really, you know, I really sort of admire a lot of his writing um, and a lot of his thought process on on decision making. I mean, in a lot of ways, the investment business is really just the business of decisions, um, and you know, which had a more eloquent uh, answer for you um, on that. It's obviously you know, a key part of of what we do. I think there's a you know, it, it is a discipline and it is something that you can learn and, and train. I think, you know, uh, over time you sort of, you become better at it innately, but you also, you know, certainly just like just by being at the gym or trying to be a high-performance athlete, I think trying to be a high-performance decision-maker is, you know, is key, especially in this business. Yeah, I know you're always trying to, to overcome the, those biases and those cognitive errors. So, so it always makes me think about Daniel Kahneman who wrote the, the classic Thinking Fast and Slow and I, it was in an interview, I'm pretty sure. Someone asked him, like, after all these years studying this, have you improved? And he said, no, I, I still make the same errors. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like I always wrestle with that. Um, I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts. Clearly, you're, you're putting a ton of time to, to overcome these biases and these cognitive errors. Mm. Yeah, I do. I, de- I definitely do. I uh, wrestle with that too. I mean, I sort of, I know the, the, the pitfalls that I fall into myself. I tend to, and I'm, I mean, a lot of the, I really, I really like Howard Marks uh, and a lot of the stuff he's written, of course, and and I, I like one of the way he puts it, and he was very eloquently eloquently puts it, is that 
you can't, you know, you don't necessarily judge the quality of the decision by the outcome. And it's so tempting to um, just, the investment world is so much about rewriting history, about how, you know, you are such a, um, you know, it's just going to sound a bit disparaging, but maybe it's just, just, to, just to illustrate a point, I'll put it in these words, how, you know, I, I was such a genius for having the foresight to make this investment look how well it's gone. And, and, and similarly to say, well, look, I made that investment, but, you know, it's entirely out of my hands why I went wrong. And that constant sort of rewriting and, you know, marketing, I mean, marketing yourself that, you know, the decision was was perfect and the outcome itself um, was really just luck if it went badly and it was all you if it went well. But I certainly agree, I certainly subscribe to Marx's thesis that, the quality of the decision is, isn't necessarily, can't necessarily be judged by the outcome. It's just, you know, it's how good is that decision at the time. And so the, I, the discipline I, I undertake is to go back and look at all my investment decisions after the fact and then uh, analyse them. And I even have a, a thing to score them and to sort of show to myself and my team about where, where, you know, what the quality of our decisions were, try to give them some sort of quantitative and, and qualitative feedback and divorce them from the outcomes and so that you can make better decisions. But I think that, because I think that is a key part of you know, this, this business. You don't have to dive too far into the scoring process. I would just love a high level overview of what that scoring process is like on those past decisions. Um, we just try to. What we try to do is look at it. We try to just quantify the number of decisions that we've made and then we try to. Um, quantify um, we just try to give like some sort of you know, idea about what what we thought the quality of the decisions of the time and then we sort of put them all into you know basically a table and say well, you know, uh, what are the decisions that we're making and are they wrong and then w- what outcome do they have when they were wrong and it's it's more along those lines I mean I'll be I'll, I'll, I'll share with you uh, something that you can I'll share with you the example if you like after the uh, call over email and you might be interested no, I, I would love to check that out. Yes, so, yeah. so you mentioned multiple books throughout this, uh, Farnham Street blog, Howard Marks, which fortunate enough, Howard was a guest on this show. Um, and just yeah. his writing has just been so profound for me. Uh, you, you have a line, I know you've tweeted this out. You should always be carrying two books, one to read, one to write in. Uh, I, I'm going to link up. I know you, you've listed some great books on your website. I'll have those linked up. Uh, anything recently that, that you've just enjoyed or maybe you even revisited again uh, because it provided so many insights? Yeah. Um, so what have I enjoyed lately? On the um, on the investment front, uh, oh, sorry, on the non-investment front, I really enjoyed um, the, the, the Bomber Mafia by um, uh, Gladwell. That's a that's a very uh, new book. It's not it's not it's not sort of completely um, consistent with what we've been talking about, but it's a very good book. Um, yeah, I've not read that one. I, I recently heard him talking about that because I know it's it's a new release for him. But yeah, I've I've enjoyed all of Gladwell's stuff in the past. Yeah, that's right. You can't really go past it. But um, uh, I read a book called Unbeatable Mind, which you know, I might be surprised to hear. That I've probably read something like that by Mark um, Devine. Um, He's the, uh, yeah, the former Navy SEAL, right? Correct. Yeah, good book. I liked it. Um, yeah, it sort of resonated with me a lot. I think very accessible, um, and not you know not too much uh, you know good good amount of sort of humility as well on, on his part. Um, I really like Richer, Wiser, Happier um, by William Green. That's a very good book from an, you know, just for investors, um, you know, of, of every nature. It just covers sort of 
the uh, it's just got a really nice narrative on a sort of a dozen investors and Howard's in there uh, and you know a lot of other big names that you would have heard of and a few that you might not have and you know it's just really really well written and accessible. Uh, do you know that book? Yeah, William uh, was was a past guest, so he gives a, a bit of a preview to that. Will, yeah, William's a, a friend. He's a, he's a very interesting thinker as well. So yeah, Richer, Wiser, Happier by William Green, I, I recommend as well. It's a great book. Yeah, really good. And then. Um, the um, the score will take care of itself, which is a book that I come back to and reread um, quite regularly. I just I love NFL, and um, uh, yeah, I just think that book's got so many lessons in it. And using sport as a sort of you know the the analogy for for life and for business, um, that if I had to, re- I often recommend that to people who um, you know are sort of hitting me up for things that they should read. I just love that that book and everything about it. Have, yeah. you, have you read? That? Yeah, by uh, Bill Walsh, the the legendary 40, 49ers coach. Uh, it was funny. I had on Tom Peters, who wrote the legendary business book uh, In Search of Excellence, and he was actually neighbors with Bill Walsh at the time. So you had this guy who's been obsessed with studying business, all of the different models, and then you have Bill Walsh, and they used to just love understanding mm. each other's different domains and learning from each other. So yeah, uh, The Score Takes Care of Itself is an excellent book uh, by Bill Walsh. Yeah, uh, it's excellent. Um, so they're, they're, that's probably the ones that uh, they've come to mind amongst you. Know, a slew of, you know, I try to, I sort of, I, I set a goal to try to get through 20 books a quarter and I'm usually pretty on track, but it's quite a lot of work. So, so yeah. let's talk about this work. I mean, you mentioned carrying two books, one to read, one to write in. Yeah. Are, are you taking notes, highlighting, distilling down, mm-hmm. or is it kind of just reading it and then letting your mind take over? I, I would just love to know more about that process for you. Yeah, sure. No, certainly, certainly the former. So, um, one thing about writing um, memos and you know, write, have put just to go through the discipline of, of putting out some, you know, even if no one reads them, and actually probably no one really, uh, that, you know, I don't know how many people really read the stuff that I that I write, but that discipline really focuses your reading. I find so if you're thinking about okay, what are the key points in this that I'm reading, and you know, how can I sort of then bring them in, maybe into some narrative that I want to bring, or some you know, use them in some way. You know, it's a bit like when you teach something to someone, you really have to understand it. It forces you to understand something. And that's kind of the same principle that I take with both reading and then writing a little bit. Um, and then, yeah, I'm just an avid, avid note taker. I mean, I, 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 I think, you know, the two things, it's just you find that you've, it's a bit like the very beginning of our conversation, how you, start, you try to optimise the things that are important in your life. I mean, the way I learn is is always about sort of, Taking the information, synthesizing into something that I could then explain to someone else. So it's part of that process. I'm, I'm wondering about that deconstruction process. Uh, I, I love studying mastery, and it seems like you, you've reached a very high and proficient level across multiple domains. I'm wondering for you, have you found those parallels in terms of deconstructing the process? across multiple domains is that something that that you do or i guess broad question i'm trying to understand how you reach mastery across multiple domains so well yeah um yeah another very good question yeah look i think so i mean i think um at the core there's it's i mean it's it's about i think it's understanding the, the first principle so it's understanding what really fundamentally drives Things and keep asking that sort of you know well, why why does why does this lead onto this and getting down to you know the core things when you when you and I, I don't I don't put myself in this category but when I speak to people uh, who I really admire especially on the investment side and I show them some investment that I'm looking at and they just immediately 
pinpoint on the thing that is crucial, you know, the, the key thing that this business is, you know, is doing or how it makes profitable or the thing that will, you know, if you imagine modeling it in a financial model, that variable that actually really counts, that skill is to me so uh, valuable in everything that you do in life. And that's what I'm constantly aspiring to be more like, um, you know, immediately and quickly and rapidly getting to what are the key things, you know, when, you know, stripping away sort of all the excess, stripping away the, the noise and getting to the, the signal to borrow a phrase from from Sean um, and, and many others. Um, yeah, that's certainly it. So I think that's, um, to me, that, that that's the key. Uh, and then, of course, you know, mastering things. It's, um, and again, I mean, humility has become such, such a theme of our chat for some reason, but having, you know, learning from others that have, or, have already mastered things is just the best way, uh, I think, to come up the curve. I mean, you has to be, you need practice, um, has to be deliberate practice, you know, that's sort of well-established that deliberate practice is the way you get better at things. Uh, and I think to get deliberate practice, you really need, um, you know, you really benefit massively from following the footsteps and learning from people that have already done it. So I follow, you know, as much as I can, I sort of follow that uh, that mantra. And I, get, I actually get very frustrated when I'm not um, learning from someone else who, you know, is significantly better at me, whatever it is. I sort of, I feel a sense of like, yeah, this is not efficient. I need to, I need to tap some other, you know, master uh, now. And I try to, I try to, I try and construct my life in that way where I can. I love the point you bring up uh, around those people uh, that you respect that can just hone in on on the crucial elements. You know, one of the one of the tests I try to do is just trying to understand how good are the questions they are that they're asking after I lay out a, a certain investment, and you can really see the people who understand what truly matters and what drives that based on the questions that they ask you. The, those follow up questions. Uh, you you mentioned just kind of studying other masters. Who, who would you love to just sit down with? Um, or this could even be a specific environment. Like a lot of people would say, hey, I would love to just join the Navy SEALs just to develop mental toughness. Is there a person, a team, a company that you would say, you know what, if I could go there for six months, wow, that would really help me improve overall? Yeah. Oh, that's a very good uh, question. And like, at, at the risk of dropping some like, cliche names, I mean, there are so there are so many um, – brilliant people that you'd love to get some time with. I mean, you know, I mean, it would be amazing to sit down and, and you know, have dinner with like with Jeff Bezos or sit down at dinner with, you know, I mean, I, I've been, uh, every time I read a really good book, like, you know, Howard Marks has won or um, um, who else have I read recently, but I, 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 I write them a little note, you know, a little handwritten note that I enjoyed it. It probably doesn't even get read, probably just hits the secretary and then goes in into the bin. Um, but I hope one day that one of those authors or one of those people that I really admire will read it and then reach out and say, hey, next time when you're in the same city, come let's have a coffee. That's sort of my um, – so to answer your question, I think the list is, is long. Usually it's authors uh, that or investors that have written things that I've read, and I am forever trying to make that happen um, in a lot of ways. But, um, yeah, so – yeah, I think the list is, the list is huge uh, on that front. You mentioned the handwritten notes. Um, Guy Spear wrote the book uh, "Legend of a Value Investor." He uh, he's written thousands at this point, uh, handwritten notes. Um, but by the by the time this episode goes out, guys will have gone out. Um, and, and he always talks to me about that that the, the notes are so important. And most of the time, you never ever hear back. But then, like yeah. we were talking about earlier, compounding goodwill will those fat tails will show up later in life. You n- you never know where that might pop up. So I, I love hearing that example as well. 
yeah. we're going to close up here in a minute. Um, but I feel like all of this is all part of that, that self-discovery process and knowing thyself. I'm wondering for you, people along their journey, it's trying to continue to develop. Is there anything you would recommend to them around just being able to discover yourself, know thyself a bit better on this journey? Mm. Yeah, very good question. So, um, well, that's a very hard one uh, to answer. I mean, I, I sort of, if, 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 if they wanted to emulate anything that, that, that I've done, and I'm not saying that you should, but I think um, I tend to try to treat my life like being a, you know, some sort of performance athlete, no matter what I'm doing. And that's come from being, you know, in that sort of world. But, and I, having that sort of, to me, the sort of the physical and, and, and the mental and the behavioral, they're all inextricably linked. So, um, you know, I think if you're, you know, know what you're doing, what you're trying to succeed, I think being, you know, physically fit and having emphasis on that, I think, um, you know, reading a lot and learning from, you know, what other people, uh, the mistakes that they've made as much as you can, um, I think that would be the two, the two things that I, I can't imagine being successful uh, without, and that is being physically fit and, and doing a lot of reading. Without those two things, I feel like I'd be a fraction of the, of the, of the person that I am. Yeah, you, you and I subscribe to the same thing there. Will, Will this has been too much fun. I'm so glad we were able to share some of, of your journey with the listeners here. You know I could go on for hours talking with you about this. I, I want to make sure we link you up with the listeners anywhere you want them going, checking out. Um, we'll have everything linked up in the show notes for you. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear from any of your listeners. And yeah, I've got my my website, which is you know distinct from you know my you know, my, my business and my investing. I just you know I, as you mentioned before, I just post a few memos and thoughts on there. I've got my books on there and a few investments that I've got. And I encourage people to have a look at that. And reach out if they uh, if they want to have a conversation or you know anything at all. Fantastic. We'll have that linked up. But Will, I can't thank you enough for joining us on what got you there. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Sean. I've really enjoyed it. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.